Good morning. One announcement to make, and if you can pass this along to others, uh, I made a computer transition here from PC to Mac a while back. And uh, in doing so, I've uh, had to transition all the emails and email groups over, and I may have lost somebody's email along the way. I, I sent out an email this week to the class. If you didn't get that email, then I've lost you in the transition. And if you want to be in our, our Sabbath school email group, then uh, go ahead and be sure and give me your email again so I can uh, get you back into our group. And if you've never been in our email group, then just give us your email we'll get you in the group. Let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that you will join us here and our hearts will be brought into unity of love. And may our minds discern truth and may you uh, use us to shine the, the light of your word into the world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in our quarterly, the uh, Gospel in Galatians, and the title this week is The Two Covenants. And what do you understand the two covenants to be referring to? I thought that would just immediately somebody go, the old and the new. (laughs) The old and the new, okay. But you never go with Tim, he he throws something in there. (laughs) So the first question then is, as we process this and go through, what is a covenant? What is it? What's it mean? What's the word mean? What is a covenant? Agreement between two people. Okay. Several of you said an agreement. And if you look it up, that's what it means. A covenant is a contract or an agreement or a treaty of some kind. Now, what did God covenant to do after man sinned? Send a redeemer. Send a redeemer. Okay. Anything else? To heal them. To heal them. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I guess send a redeemer is kind of like all-encompassing. It kind of, all these other things I said probably is all included in that one thing. And, you know, I put things like save the species human, okay? Uh, and uh, provide a remedy to sin that will be freely available to anybody who wants it. Uh, reveal the truth to save all who will let him, to bring an end to sin and to create a new earth. I mean, didn't he covenant to do all these things after man sinned? Now, how much of this covenant agreement requires the participation of mankind? None of it. Well, she says none of it. Well, promises. well was, was a, a female human being necessary for the incarnation? Yes. And did she have to be a willing participant? Yes. So at least they had to have one woman who was willing to be the vessel for Christ to become incarnate. And that, that was, that was the, the one, one willing participant. Um, but did, and then how about for individual salvation? Does it require our cooperation? Yes, it does. So for individual salvation. But the rest of it, um, does it require our cooperation to save the human species? No. No, it was saved in Christ. Christ became human and and he lived perfectly, and he rose again, and if no other human ever exists, the human race was saved in the person of Jesus Christ. There will always be a human being in existence, because Jesus Christ became human. So, no, he didn't need, need us to save the species. Did he need us to provide a remedy? No, he provided that in himself. He is the remedy. And that's available now to all who will accept it. Um, <clears throat> will he need us to... Did he need us to reveal the truth about... God, or did he do that himself? Does, will he need us to bring an end to sin, or will he do that on his own? And what about recreating the new earth? Will he need us for that? 
So if you notice all these things, the, the primary provisions, they're all done by him. We did have to have one willing woman to be the, the bearer of the child. Seems to me. I don't think he would have forced that upon somebody, do you? No. And, and then for those of us who accept that, want to, want to partake of the remedy, that requires our participation. The lesson rightly states that the two covenants are not matters of time. Instead, they are, they are reflective of human attitudes. How would you describe the attitudes of those two covenants? The old and the new covenant. What, the, the two attitudes are what? The old covenant, or the one made with Israel, was they were depending on themselves instead of depending on God. Well, I think that's right. And, and the way I simply say it is, the old covenant, I will cure myself. And the new covenant, I trust myself into God's hands for him to cure. Yes. But from God's perspective, the two covenants were always the same. Right. From our perspective, they Really? No. No. Actually, we're going to discover in the lesson today, they weren't. Test me on it as we go through, okay? Challenge me on it. I love that, Kathy. You challenge me, okay? Let's, see if, let's, see if, let's explore and see if there were actually two covenants. And God actually instituted two covenants, one with the intention of it failing. We'll see. Let's, let's look at the evidence. All right, Sunday's lesson. Second paragraph. It says, the Hebrew word translated covenant is berit. It occurs nearly 300 times in the Old Testament and refers to a binding contract agreement or treaty. For thousands of years, covenants played an integral role in defining the relationship between people and nations across the ancient Near East. Covenants often involve the slaughter of animals as part of the process to make literally, uh, to, of making literally cutting a covenant. The killing of the animals symbolized what would happen to a party that failed to keep its covenant promises and obligations. So what you hear being described here, what do you hear? The, the process of how a contract parties enter a negotiation, they come to an agreement, and, they, and then they sign their agreement through this ritual. Is that what you hear being described? Yes. Yeah, what do you hear? The understanding of, of a covenant is, is a little bit kind of misunderstood throughout this lesson in that it is not actually more like a legal contract. A covenant is a promise. It is something that one would rather die than break. And in the Near East, often it was, um, the, the, you know, it, one would promise more than the other, um, in this case, I think God made all the promises and on, in the covenant. It doesn't matter what the other person does or says. Um, that covenant will be kept. Yeah, I, I like the direction you're going with that. I really like the direction you're going, particularly when you're trying to draw a contrast between the way covenant seems to be presented in the lesson. And let's, and we're going to, I think, explore that further. Yes. The other issue that I don't think was, was addressed is that God didn't need either one of these covenants. Humankind needed these two covenants. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And w the, both were necessary for the people that they were made with. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Let's move to the last paragraph. The first paragraph, if we go with what the lesson says, and we ask, what did the lesson describe? The paragraph that we just read, the lesson describes the co uh, covenant as a, an agreement, a contract, or a treaty. That's how the lesson describes it. Go to the last paragraph and we read this. While marriage, physical labor, and the Sabbath were part of the general provisions of the covenant of creation, its main focal point was God's command not to eat the forbidden fruit. 
The basic nature of the covenant was obey and live. With a nature created in harmony with God, the Lord did not require the impossible. Obedience was humanity's natural inclination, yet Adam and Eve uh, chose to do what was not natural, and in that act, they not only ruptured the covenant of creation, they made its terms impossible for humans now, corrupted by sin. God had to restore the relationship that Adam and Eve had lost. And I think there's a couple of good things in this paragraph. One, it was not natural for them to sin. It was natural for them as they were designed to live in harmony with God, wasn't it? I think that's a very good point. And it's also a good point that after they sinned, the responsibility, the ability to restore mankind fell onto God. Man couldn't do it himself. I think those are really good points. But I, I, I think going down the line that Eve is going down here, when I read the second, the second paragraph about a covenant being a treaty, an agreement, uh, a contract, and then I read this last paragraph about the terminology, the covenant of creation, it really threw some questions into my mind. Because doesn't a contract or a treaty or an agreement require the consent of two parties? The participation of two parties? Yeah. And if you think about those types of agreements, they're based on the goals, the desires, the wishes of the two parties involved negotiating and coming to some agreement or understanding. Regarding God's warning in Eden, they talk about a contract or, an, or, or a covenant, obey and, and, and live. Um, God's warning to, to Adam and Eve in Eden, in the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Was this a contract agreement or a treaty of any kind? Was it a covenant of any kind? No. All, all what's happening here is God is describing to Adam and Eve the reality of the universe he built and the environment he put them in. I've built my universe to run in harmony with my character, my law of love. Harmony with me and my law of love is life. Break that, death happens. In the day you eat, you will surely die. It would be like God taking them to the top of the Empire State Building uh, and saying, in the day you jump off, you will surely die. Now, is that a contract, a covenant, an agreement? That's not a contract. It's a description of reality. And what's happening in Genesis when God says, in the day you eat, you will die, he's describing reality to them. This is what's going to happen. It's not a contract or a covenant. Cause and effect. Yes, yeah, cause and effect. When God said they would not die, was he referring to the first death or the second death? When God said they would not die? When, no, when he said you will die. Uh, if you use the scripture and God's definition of death, God only calls death one thing. And he doesn't call it the sleep thing. Jesus calls that sleep. The Bible calls, God, God refers to what we call death as sleep. God calls non-existence death. Okay, so he's referring to the final destruction. That's what I believe he's referring to. Life. I heard a li- sermon where the preacher yes. thought it was, was teaching that it was the other way. Yeah. They would not die the first death. Life, as I understand it, is constructed by God to exist in harmony with his nature and character. That's how he built his universe. If you break that principle, how can life go on? It can't. That's what he's saying. Life can't live outside this. So what happens if we believe uh, that, uh, that in Eden we have a covenant, a contract, a treaty, an, ag- uh, uh, an agreement of some kind in Eden, what, what the lesson calls the covenant of creation, 
or the, the basic nature of the covenant. If we believe that, then this is what we do. We immediately put God back in the position of being the enforcer of broken covenants. You see, when you break a treaty or break a covenant, somebody has to enforce the consequences of those breaches, those breaks. And God is now an investigator, a uh, enforcer, a uh, treaty in, in, in enforcer, rather than the reality that when you break God's law, natural consequences take over unless God intervenes to save. So is God suing the breaches of the, of the treaty? Is he prosecuting? Is he punishing? In the ancient Near East, if we use the analogy from the lesson, they would slaughter the animals, split them in half, and people would walk down that saying, if I break this treaty, may this happen to me. If somebody in the ancient Near East broke the treaty, who would enforce that consequence upon them? The person who broke the contract would be so disappointed by themselves, they would kill themselves. Sometimes. Sometimes. Would it be a natural consequence or be imposed? So it creates this distorted idea, if we believe this is a covenant, that there is no natural consequence to breaking God's law. The problem is when you break God's law, he has to enforce penalties for the broken contract. Yes? I appreciate it that the author brought out in another part in the lesson more of a context of the word obey. But I think so often when we hear the word obey and when we read it in that context, what we hear is God says, do what I say and you'll live. But what God is really saying is, listen, I'm going to teach you all about it. If you just listen to me, I'm going to teach you everything you need to have for eternal existence. I think that's a great point. The Hebrew and the Greek are both the same. The word obey means a humble willingness to listen and, and to follow um, where, where we're being led, to learn, to understand. It means very much like Thessalonians, a, a love for the truth. We have a heart that loves truth and wants to follow truth where it leads. Yeah. So back to the uh, specifics then of the covenants of creation, the lesson side. What about marriage? As God designed it, not as it exists in a current sinful world, but in Eden, as God designed it, was Adam and Eve's marriage based on contract law? Or was it actually part of their design, just like the ability to reproduce and have children was part of their design? God designed them to be in that uni- union and, and, and relationship. And this is why Adam says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You were designed, built, to be in this type of relationship. Did they have to have a prenuptial agreement or a marriage license in, the, in Eden? No, it wasn't that kind of relationship. What about physical labor? Think about physical labor. They cite this as part of the original covenant. Did God uh, you know, contract with Adam to keep up the, the garden for him? Or if you understand God's design, how he built the law of love is the law of giving, when you labor, you give your time, your energy, and as you give of yourself to serve, to help, to, to build, you actually grow stronger yourself as you work, don't you? Right. And so the labor was given to them for their blessing because of the way God built his universe drum. If you don't use it, you will lose it. And so again, we don't find this as contract law. What about the Sabbath? This is often referred to in many institutions. The Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience. This is where you get real contract law. God said, obey my day or else. This is a test of who you're going to be loyal to. You will either be loyal to me or the beast because I have made a day with no reason other than it's your choice who you're going to worship. True? No. The Sabbath is a gift. It was a gift to man and to the onlooking universe who look into the planet Earth 
to learn about God, First Corinthians four nine, and as a gift to mankind, it's not a it's not a matter of contract law. Yes, isn't it a response also to Satan's lies in the Great Controversy as well? Absolutely, and that's exactly right, and that's part of the gift. It's a gift for the day of rest, but its gift itself is evidence of how God does things. Its existence shows God's methods of, of running and ruling. And so we look at this existence of this day and we see, wow, God doesn't enforce things. He gives us freedom to think and choose for ourselves. That's why this day exists. God is not like Satan says. So its existence is evidence. So it's Satan who wants to take the beauty of God's character, the design that he built his universe to run upon, the principles of love, and turn it into some type of a legalistic, contractual thing that puts God back in the role of then having to enforce broken contracts. But what happens when people say, I don't see it that way? Every person be fully persuaded in their own mind, Romans 14. That's That's what they say. They say, well, I don't see it that way. Yes. And then what do you do? Uh, What do you do? Oh, I shut up. You shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I like to ask more questions. Uh, When people don't see it that way, I ask questions. I'm going to tell you, uh, the truth can afford to be fair. It loses nothing by close investigation. So the more questions you ask, the truth will become more and more clear. If you have a position that is not based on good evidence, good science, good, good, good principles, then as you ask questions, the thing will start falling apart. And it doesn't make sense. Um, Monday's lesson, talking about the covenant with Abraham. What did God covenant with Abraham to do? Now this is more of an, uh, we're moving more towards covenants, I think, here. What did God covenant with Abraham to do? To make a great nation and the Messiah would come through his... To make a great nation and to bless all the peoples of the earth through him. Isn't this the basic covenant? Okay. Was this a new covenant? Or was this just the same covenant that we had in Eden in Genesis 3 when he promised that the seed would crush the serpent's head and the head... uh, uh, Yeah, would uh, crush the serpent's head and the head would bruise... and the serpent would bruise his heel... There was a promise of a Messiah there. And now what we get is we get the same promise again. Isn't it the same promise? But we get the specification now of which family that promise is going to come through. And so now God is announcing that Abraham, Abraham, it's your family that the promise I made in Eden is going to come to reality. Isn't that the same? Or am I missing something? Same covenant, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. We need to watch that that covenant was not made before Adam and Eve sinned. It was made after they did. But sometimes they make it look like as if the covenant started before sin came into this world. When God said to to Eve or to Adam and Eve, "Don't eat of that tree; you'll die." That was not a covenant. That's right. That was a difference. That's that's exactly right. So, what did God do in order to provide Abram with? confidence that God would follow through with this covenant. After he made this covenant, God did something. What did he do? Well, part of this process was he worked through something that Abraham or Abraham could understand. He came down through cut animals. There you go. Think that through. Now think, this is God of heaven, created everything. Abraham has been just given a promise by God, a covenant, this is what I'm going to do for you. And, and to help Abraham have confidence, God comes down and walks through a little pathway of 
dead animals that are cut in half with half on either side. What does that say about God? Meet us where we are. Think about that in your own experience. What does it say about God that this majestic, unbelievably holy, beautiful being would humble himself to the point that he would come down here and walk through some dead corpses to make you feel better? See, can you trust a God like that? I have a question about Abraham. Why did he have to leave Earth of the Chaldees at the age of 75 to look for a country he didn't know with his wife Sarah and then have a covenant with, with God? Why did he have to leave his environment? Couldn't he do his missionary work right there? Um, he didn't have to leave. He could have stayed. But he was invited to, by God to get out. Now, whether he would have been able to fulfill God's purposes if he stayed or not, I don't know. But he wasn't. Uh, he had the freedom to say to God, no, I'm not going to leave, I'm going to stay here. Now, whether God would have continued to work through with him or not, I don't know. Why did God ask him to leave? That's a different question. Uh, the have to, uh, that kind of sounds to me like he didn't have a choice. I, I think he had a choice. He asked him to leave. Yes, he asked him to leave. Why did God ask him to leave? Any thoughts on that? I think it was to get him away from the environment that he was in so God could communicate with him better, and he wouldn't be influenced by his family. I agree with Margaret. It was per the primary purpose was to disengage him from the traditions and the routines that he had grown up with so that he could be led to new concepts and new ideas and new truths. And he wanted to break the rituals and, uh, and also put his uh, family in a, in a new environment where Abraham would be more reliant upon God than he is upon his family to help him out in times of need. So I think it was all part of that. Yes? Don't you think when God asks us to do something that we're not uh, comfortable with, that we learn to depend on him when we follow him, when he asks us to go to places or do things that we don't necessarily choose to do ourselves? Yeah, I, exactly. I think that's right. It helped build his confidence and trust in God. Yeah, absolutely. Yes? Along that line, I think we have to get out of our comfort zone. He wants us to get out of our comfort zone, and Abraham had to do that. And he, he would never have developed the faith that he had had he not experienced something other than being in the, in the close confines of his family where everybody's comfortable. I think these are all excellent points. It was all about building up Abraham. Yes, Wendell. It also isolated him. Yes. It wasn't because the people he was going to be around were any more holy than the people he was leaving. But it, it isolated him so that he could be a unit under, unto God. Why do you think Abraham needed uh, extra assurance of God coming down and walking through the animals? Why did Abraham need that? Yes. Because Abraham thought he would help God out a little bit. No, 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 no. We're not quite there yet. We're going to get there. You're just a step ahead of me. Okay? Why did he need this extra assurance? Abraham was 75. Okay, how old was Sarah? About 75, right? 70, 75? Do you think they were questioning their fertility? that they had doubts whether, whether, I mean, Abraham was doubting whether their bodies could actually produce a child. And this is why he's saying, hey, uh, you said that. Okay, I know you're good, but I really need some extra assurance here. Because I'm like, seven, anybody 75 in this room? How about if God says you're going to have a child? You, you questioning that? Yeah, there's several heads going, yeah, I'm questioning that. Yeah, okay. And so, uh, yes. Oh, just a quick comment. I think, why, in addition to building up Abraham, I think in God's foreknowledge, he saw that as civilization grew and changed, 
that where Abraham would be would be at a crossroads of the world. In other words, he could best share the light, the good news about God's character in that so, geographic location. So that's another reason he had him move. Yeah, I know it's not as nice no, as some of the spiritual things. No, I think no, I think that's true too. I think God has got multiple reasons. Person, yeah, it's intriguing how God places us at where we can be most effectual. I think that's true too. I like it. So, do you think if um, at the bottom of the lesson on Tuesday it asks, in what ways has your lack of faith in God's promises caused you some pain? And I got to thinking about that. And I, and I thought, and then it goes on, how can you learn to, uh, from these mistakes and so forth, and what can you do to help strengthen your faith in his promises? And do you think we would doubt God as much if we understood more about him, his methods, his principles, how his nature works, how he, how he created things to operate? Uh, um, do, do you think we understood more from, like, Maybe we got to spend about 15 minutes in heaven and kind of ask a bunch of questions. Do you think that we would have more faith or less faith? Yeah, I mean, doesn't, doesn't our questioning, because we, we understand so little about God and so little about his method, so little about how he designed things to work and so forth, and the more we understand, then the greater our faith. Isn't it true? Yeah, so it seems to me that, that the, what undermines us always comes back to somehow we don't know God well enough. And as, our, as we know God more and more, uh, our faith grows, it seems to me. Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph says, Hagar's place in Genesis' story is directly related to Abram's failure to believe God's promise. As an Egyptian slave in Abram's household, uh, Hagar likely came into Abram's possession as one of the many gifts Pharaoh gave him. And then the next paragraph, after waiting 10 years for the promised child to be born, Abram and Sarah remained childless, concluding that God needed their help. Sarah gave Hagar to Abram as a concubine. Although strange to us today, Sarah's plan was quite ingenious. According to ancient customs, a female slave legally could serve as a surrogate for her uh, barren mistress. Thus, Sarah could count any child born from her husband and Hagar as her own. While the plan did not uh, did produce a child, it did not it was not the child God had promised. So, the lesson asserts that Abram failed to believe God's promise. What promise would that be that Abraham failed to believe? To provide a seed. Hmm. Okay, so that's, that's a possibility, to provide a seed. Any other ideas? I really think about this. What promise did Abraham fail to believe? God's power, have a child. Well, what was the first promise to Abraham? I will make a great nation of you, and through you all the nations will be blessed. And then you will, second promise, you will have many, you know, the, uh, or it's kind of the same promise, but look up at the stars of the sky, and blah, 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 you will have the nation, okay? Did that promise say it would come through Sarah? No. Didn't say that. Hmm. In fact, if you read... Uh, when Abraham's 85 years of age, 10 years after the first promise, first promise is Genesis 12, that I will make a great nation from you. And then 10 years later, at age 85, you can read in Genesis chapter 15, 2 through 5, the following conversation between Abraham and God. Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant, uh, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him inside and said, Look up to the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. Where does it say anything about Sarah in there? 
Does it? No, it doesn't say anything about Sarah in there. Um, in fact, when do we find the first word from God that the promised child would be from Sarah? After the birth of Ishmael, that God says it's, uh, it is from Sarah you will have the, the promised child. So, if we accept custom that the slave woman of um, Sarah could legally provide an heir to Abraham and a child, a surrogate child for Everybody even in our society today heard of surrogate moms? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This was evidently a, hasn't, a custom that hasn't completely died out. I, uh, we have a, you know, some more scientific methods for bringing that about. Um, but the lesson suggests that Abraham had a lapse in faith given the nature of the promises and the understanding of the marriage uh, and the slaves at the time. What do you think? In fact, I would even go with another direction. If Abraham didn't believe he would have descendants, he didn't believe God had, uh, didn't believe God's promise to make a great nation and bless nations through him. If he didn't believe this was going to happen, would he have likely taken Hagar? Wasn't it precisely because he and Sarah did believe that God was going to do this that they, that she offered and he took Hagar uh, to have a child with? Yeah, it seems to me it was God's promise that had been given to him that made him even think to go down this route in the first place. It wasn't that he didn't believe he was going to have a great nation. It wasn't that he didn't believe that there was going to be a seed that comes from him that's going to bless the nation. He did believe it. He just didn't know the exact method God was going to bring it about. And so he was trying to help God's method or plan along with his own ingenuity. What do you think? Yes. In the marriage relationship, if, if the two will become one, isn't that necessarily a promise that through Seed because Abraham and Sarah are essentially one. Thank you. And so what comes in here to interfere with Abraham's understanding that when he married Sarah, the two are one, and so your seed means your and Sarah's seed. The two are one. A marriage. What interfered with that understanding? Tradition. Human tradition. And this is what we're going to find when we point this out to you. It's another place where belief in God, faith in God, Abraham had faith in God. And the action on how he lived out that faith got derailed by human tradition. That the tradition of being able to take a you know, concubine or a, a slave woman and, and have a child from, that tradition derailed the, God's plan and caused lots of problems. And hasn't there been lots of suffering down through the generations because of that? Well, this is what happened to the Jews in Christ's day. They believed in God, didn't they? They still believed in God. What happened when Christ came? Their action, how they lived out their faith in God, got derailed by tradition. And Christ told them over and over again, you make null the the commandments of God for your traditions. And of course, they crucified him because of their traditional understanding. And what about Christianity today? We believe in God, but has the practice, how we carry out our Christianity, been infected by tradition? In the Second Timothy 3, 1 through 5, this is uh, Paul writing to Timothy, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. 
this horrible description, was, were they, was he describing the godless? <laughs> Ultimately, they are godless, but you know what I meant. Yeah, so you answered right. No, he's describing those who proclaim or profess a belief in God. But what's gotten in the way? I'm going to assert what's gotten in the way is tradition. Their practices have been derailed by tradition. And Jesus said, Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These people profess to be Christians. And I'm going to suggest as Abraham believed in God, but his behavior was derailed by tradition, the Jews believed in God, their behavior was derailed by tradition, and ultimately brought harm in both cases. That Christianity today stands poised to do the same thing, professing belief in God, but our actions can be as as destructive as as those two situations, yes, by tradition. You know, I think this just really puts a, a big plight before us to think about because traditions are extremely valuable. They're necessary to us as humans. In fact, the fourth tradition, the fourth commandment, God outlined a bunch of traditions to keep them focused on something about his character. Everything he gave them in the fourth commandment was to establish a tradition for them to remember the Sabbath day. So there is deep, deep value in tradition. We just have to remember that it's a human tradition. Well, any tradition, any tradition can be good or it can be bad. My, I have traditions in my family that really connect me to my family. Those things are healthy, but we have to remember what they are and what place they have in our mind. I appreciate that. So let me ask the question then. What is the traditional Christian view of God's character? Yeah, <laughs> that's a problem. judge. <laughs> what is the traditional Christian view of the atonement. God needs to be appeased. He needs to be propitiated. I mean, I'm not, I don't have any of the quotes, and I'm not going to go through them again because we've gone through them in this class many times. But across Christianity is this view that God is angry, wrathful, and must be appeased. This is, tr- this is tradition, human tradition that has infected the truth about God. And God has called at the end of time for a people who will stand up and break from human tradition who will get back to the truth about who God is as revealed in Christ. Yeah. And this is our challenge. And I'm going to tell you, our church was ultimately a, a, to be a movement, not an institution. This organization was to be a movement. And it's become institutionalized. And the movement and the purpose was to finish the Reformation to prepare the world for Christ's coming. And I, I think from this... I think th- that that we still stand poised to be able to do that if we can get tradition out of our thinking and back to the truth about God's character. Yes. What about the tradition of Christmas and how we as Christians follow this? Away in a manger. <laughs> no, um... The tradition of Chris- Christmas uh, depends, this goes back, to, I think, to what Kathy was just saying, it depends completely on what your tradition is. You can make your tradition of Christian be completely Chris- of Christmas be completely commercialized. And it's all about all that you can get. How much can I get this Christmas? 
Or you can make the tradition of Christmas be about how can I give? How can I help the poor and the needy in my community? How can I give to the Toys for Tots? How can I um, provide the Samaritan Center for people who don't have anything? So it depends on what you're going to do with your tradition. How did the tradition of Christmas start? Um, pagan roots. December 25 is a pagan holiday. It started, it started when, when, when imperialism infected Christianity thousands of years ago. Yes. But so does gathering in a room in long rows like this. That's right. All of these things came out of... So we, what I was saying a while ago is we really have to stop and think what's driving us and why and what's at the root of it. Because everything, most of our traditions that we maintain on Sabbath... Let me show you where the danger is. When we take God's design, design for marriage, that you pointed out, two should be one, and we break God's design and substitute a human tradition for God's design for things, then we get, we get damaged, we injure, because we're out of harmony with the way he built it to operate. When we take God's design for life, the law of love upon which he built his universe to operate, and we replace that idea with an imposed law system, an imperial Roman idea of what law is like, and then we create our theology based on that imperial imposed law system, we get damaged, we damage our minds, our characters, and we fail to fulfill the purpose that God has called us for. So the tradition that replaces God's design is the dangerous tradition. And that's what Christ told them. You, you make null the commandments of God or the design of God for your human traditions. So when you talk about the different traditions, the traditions that don't destroy or make null God's design, I don't think are necessarily going to have that damaging consequence to it. But when we do damage or, or, or replace the way God designed it to operate for a human invention, then we will never actually have peace or happiness because it wasn't built to work that way. Does that make sense? And that's what's happened to Christianity. The whole idea of what Christ accomplished in, 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 in Christian tradition is not based on God's design for life, but it's based on Imperial Rome's idea of what law looks like and what's necessary to fix it. Yes? In Mark 7, Jesus talks about human traditions. <clears throat> and uh, He says, In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines uh, of traditions of man. And this is within the context of what the Jews did. For example, uh, a person who would be the heir of the house of his parents, uh, when they were very old, he would say, sorry, I'm going to give this to the church, I'm going to give this to the temple. Corban, yeah. And you have to leave. Goodbye. Yes. In other words, they would be homeless, they would be poor. But, and, and the reason they would do that, he would dedicate the money to the church, but only after they died, so they could continue to use the money for themselves their whole life and not have to spend it to care for their parents. So it was really not even about promoting the gospel of the church, it was about promoting self. Yeah. Um, so why did Paul take such a disparaging view? The, uh, the um, author of the lesson asked, why did Paul take such a disparaging view of Hagar and the child that came from Hagar? And, and after we've walked through this, I'm going to suggest, because Paul understood just what we talked about, that Hagar was a, a, a representation of breaking God's design for things and operating under human principles and attempts to fix things. And so he gives this metaphor that, uh, that the child born of Hagar, a slave woman, remains a slave, just like a child born of a sinner uh, and, and of its own strength remains a sinner. 
And so the child born of Isaac was a, was a miracle promised child and only, and, and Isaac represents the free woman and therefore, um, who is able to inherit the estate. Jesus is that child, that seed who inherits the estate, who is the son of the, uh, of God. And through his accomplishments, through what he's achieved, we can be joint heirs with him. And so he's making this huge distinction because Jesus operated perfectly in harmony of God's design and put within his own experience God's law of love back into the human being as he loved perfectly in his humanity. Uh, Tim, do you think that maybe the distinction of Mary being willing to be the mother of the child and Hagar being a slave and being maybe forced to be the mother of Isaac's or of Abraham's child would have made a difference? I think there's elements of that there as well, yeah. And we don't know whether Hagar was actually willing or not. She might have been willing. Freedom uh, and being a slave is important in the woman's perspective too, I think. Top Wednesday's lesson, it says, what type of covenant relationship did God want to establish with the people at Sinai? And the first sentence states then after that, God desired to share the same covenant relationship with the children of Israel at Sinai as he shared with Abraham. And this is where we started the, uh, the question earlier. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge that. If that's so, let's, let's talk about that. Here is what he said to Moses to say to the children of Israel. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenants, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this is what God told Abraham to tell the people. Excuse me, God told Moses to tell the people. So you notice, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession and I'll make you a kingdom of priests and holy nation. With Abraham, God promised to do everything. I will do this. I will make. Was there an if then with Abraham? If you do this, then I'll do that. There wasn't. This, there's a clear if then. If you obey me, then I will do this. That's not what he said to Abraham. So why did God say it this way to them? Because the people responded, Exodus 19.8, we will do everything the Lord has said. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. So what does this reveal? What does their answer reveal? It reveals something. It's very telling. And it gives you insight as to why God gave this covenant the way he did. Self-confidence. Exactly. It reveals their lack of insight, their lack of awareness, their lack of understanding of their own condition, and they actually had this idea that they were able to do uh, these things. Imagine if somebody came to you and said, if you jump off the Empire State Building and flap your arms and fly around it three times, then I will make a great nation out of you. And you go, oh, I'll do that. (laughs) Right. See? And then you jump. What's going to happen? You're not going to fly around the building three times flapping your arms. Okay, But if you believed you could do that, there's something wrong with your awareness of your abilities. Okay, They were completely unaware of how pathetic, sick of heart, sinful they were. They thought they were able to do this. So God gave them this commandment, I mean, gave them this covenant, they, knowing what they were going to say, yeah, we'll do it, for the very purpose of exposing to them that they can't do it. To diagnose them, to bring them to conviction. Did they say it out of fear? Did they say it out of fear? Um, I don't know. It was Moses, uh, Moses communicating this to them, and, and they said, that all the Lord has said we will do. They were talking to Moses at the time. So, I don't know, maybe it was fear. Uh, maybe it was, uh, I, I think it was a, an actual 
significant failure to understand their own condition. And so this was given to them to help diagnose them so that they would realize their helplessness over their own condition and then rely on God. And if you look at Friday's lesson, and we're going to read those paragraphs, and I'm going to read the, the paragraph that's missing in between the two that you get on Friday, then you can follow along in Friday's lesson. It says, But if the Abrahamic covenant contained the promise of redemption, why was another formed at Sinai? In their bondage, the people had to a great extent lost the knowledge of God and the principles and of the principles of the Abrahamic covenant. In delivering them from Egypt, God sought to reveal to them his power and his mercy that they might be led to love and trust him. He brought them down to the Red Sea where, pursued by the Egyptians, escape seemed impossible that they might realize their utter helplessness, their need of divine aid, and thus he wrought deliverance for them. Thus they were filled with love and gratitude to God and with confidence in his power to help them. He had bound them to himself as a deliverer from temporal bondage. But there was still a greater truth to be impressed upon their minds. Living in the midst of idolatry and corruption, they had no true conception of the holiness of God, of the exceeding sinfulness in their own hearts, their utter inability in themselves to render obedience to God's law, and their need of a Savior. All this they must be taught. God brought them to Sinai. He manifested his glory. He gave them his law with the promise of great blessing on the condition of obedience. If you obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The people did not realize the sinfulness of their own hearts and that without Christ it was impossible for them to keep God's law. And they readily entered into the covenant with God, feeling that they were able uh, to establish their own righteousness. They declared all that the Lord said we will do, we will be obedient. Yet only a few weeks passed before they broke their covenant and bowed down to worship the graven image. They could not hope for the favor of God through a covenant which they had broken. So again, God, I think, gave this second covenant with these terms for the very purpose, helping them realize they can't do it. Do you see how God again stoops to meet us where we are? To interact with us in ways that we need to help open our minds to our true condition for our deliverance and help and healing. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. How long was the Old Covenant given at Sinai, when we call Old Covenant the one at Sinai? Not the one that actually existed longer in time. <laughs> but uh, the one at Sinai, how long did, was it actually in, in force? A couple of weeks, a few weeks, that was it. It was only in force a few weeks. Get your mind around this idea, because this is another Christian tradition. We're going to have a couple more to expose before class is over. And the, the tri, a Christian tradition is the Old Covenant lasted the, until Jesus came. No, it lasted two weeks or three when, when they were worshiping the golden calf. It was over. A few weeks, it's done. That one's over. That means everything else happening in the Old Testament is New Covenant stuff. Just, just your mind meditate on that for a minute. Yeah. With dispensationalism, they to- totally destroyed this whole idea of Con, uh, continuation of the covenant. Yes, he says with dispensationalism. And if, you, if you're not familiar with those term, it's a, a Christian tradition that there was the dispensation of law where God interacted with mankind through law. And then there's the dispensation of grace. The dispensation of law is Old Testament. 
and God gave law, and it was rules-oriented, and you had to obey the law, and you had to sacrifice animals, and if you didn't do that, you couldn't be saved because it was a dispensation of law. But now we have the dispensation of grace, and the law has been done away with. But the Adventists are still under the old dispensation because we have to keep the Sabbath. Well, the reality is there was no dispensation of law. It was always a dispensation of grace. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned in Eden, it was a dispensation of grace. The covenant of Genesis 3 is a dispensation of grace. The, 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 the dispensation of law, if you want to use that, lasted about what, three, four weeks. Just a few weeks until they were worshiping the gold. It's broken. It's done. Law, dispensation of law is over. We're back to grace. And it was the only purpose, the only purpose of the dispensation of law was to diagnose the people. Get them convicted that they can't do it. Help bring them to the reality that they needed an external deliverer. Somebody outside themselves to fix what was broken in them. Because they couldn't do it themselves. That was its purpose. It's very gracious of God, and still, that was still an act of grace, wasn't it? Yes. I think one of the questions that comes down to this covenants and and grace and whatnot is what's the part of human effort? Or is there a part of human effort? And it's implied that any effort that Abraham gave, including this thing with Ishmael, was all wrong, and that we should have no effort whatsoever on our part. We have free will. When we, we do have free will. When we operate under the system of Christian tradition with an imposed law system, it becomes very murky where that line is drawn. When we operate under the natural law of God designed his universe to run upon, it becomes very clear. Whose work was it to, to provide remedy for our condition? how much work can any sinful human being do to develop the remedy for sin none when you're sick and you and there's a remedy in existence for your condition and you take the remedy do you heal yourself or does the remedy do something in you you can't do for yourself do you have a responsibility to participate with the treatment plan to follow the instructions of the doctor. Is it your work that gets you well? No, it's not your work that gets you well. Will you get well if you refuse to follow the treatment plan? You refuse to take your remedy? No. So this is when they said, what work must we do that we can have eternal life? And Jesus said, trust him. Trust him who God has sent. Put your trust in me. So if you told the young rich ruler, go and keep the cellular what you have and follow me. Yeah, she, uh, she said, except he told the rich young ruler, go and sell what you had. Okay, why? Why did he tell the ruler this? Diagnosis. Diagnosis. This was not a treatment because before you can be treated, you have to be convicted that you have, some, convicted that you have something wrong that needs to be treated. So our work, if you want work involved, our role is to first come to a point that we realize we need to, we have a problem. If we never come to the point we realize we have a problem, hey, I'm already righteous. I don't need the Lord. That's my mindset. My first responsibility is to be convicted. That's not true. The rich young ruler, that prescription was to expose in his heart he wasn't righteous because he thought he was. And he loved money more than he loved others. And that was a diagnosis Okay, It wasn't a treatment or cure. And then after he's convicted that he loves money more than others, wow, what a wretched man and I, I need a cure. 
I can't fix this. That's the purpose. And where does that cure come from? From trusting God. When we trust God, what do we do with our heart? I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who hears my voice, lets me in, I will come in. When he comes in, what does he do? Changes us. Changes us. That's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit we can't do for ourselves. Yes? I think we have to maybe accept responsibility for some of the misperception of the Sabbath with dispensationalists and saying that we're still under the law because what God told us was to remember the Sabbath, not show me by your obedience that you're loyal to me. What God was saying was, remember the tremendous revelation that I gave you about my character at creation. Remember that. Keep that straight in your mind and things, everything else will be clear. But we've turned it into an arbitrary move that we make to win God's pleasure. When what he was saying was, remember what I showed you on the Sabbath? That is the very core of what you need to understand about me. Well said. And those who crucified Christ wanted him down so they could keep the Sabbath, behaviorally. Exactly what you're saying. Thursday's lesson, let's see if we can wrap up with Thursday's lesson. And uh, aren't you proud we're getting like basically through the whole lesson this week? Yeah. <laughs> Thursday's lesson. It's uh, a first paragraph. It says, Paul's brief sketch of Israel's history is designed to counter the argument made by his opponents who claimed that they were the true descendants of Abraham and that Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish Jewish Christianity and the law was their mother. The Gentiles they charged were illegitimate. If they wanted to become true followers of Christ, they must first become sons of Abraham by submitting to the law of circumcision. Okay? Do Christians today struggle with the similar misunderstanding? Yes. Yes. Yes, they do. What's the misunderstanding? The misunderstanding is God is a racist. He prefers people who are genetic descendants of Abraham. And if you're a genetic descendant of Abraham, you get a special treatment from God and a special pathway to God and a special inheritance from God. And then once the secret rapture comes and the Christians are taken off the earth, the Jews that are descendant from Abraham will reign in Jerusalem again and start their sacrifices again in three and a half years on earth because the genetic descendants of Abraham have a special place that the rest of us can't go. And the dispensations explain all of that. Yes. This is no different than what was going on back then. Is God a racist? No. No. And here's the deal. I mean, this is what people forget. God is the God of all humanity, not just the God of the Jews. He made everyone in Adam. That's what the Bible says. We are descended from Adam, the first Adam, we were all made sinners, and the second Adam, which is not Abraham. Jesus, many will be made righteous. That's it. Two, two choices. Sinner from Adam, righteous from Christ. So what does the Bible say? Well, John the Baptist confronted the people in Luke chapter seven, uh, chapter 3, 7 through 9. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you uh, to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. What's he saying? It, it makes a difference who, who your genetic heritage is or it doesn't make a difference? It doesn't make a difference. Jesus, of course, you know, um, when he was talking with them, he says, I know, this is what Jesus says in um, John chapter 8, 30, 34 through 38. I won't read it all. Just hit the high points. He says to them, I know you are Abraham's descendants. And then two verses later, he says, if you are Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. And further down, he says, 
but you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out his desires. So Jesus says, I know you're genetically, biologically descended from Abraham, but if you were really Abraham's children, you would do what he did and you would love me. But because you hate me, you're not really from Abraham. You're from the devil. That's what he's saying. And then Romans chapter 9, 6 through 8, it is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring were reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Can you say it any more plainly than that? It doesn't matter who your DNA comes from. It matters who your character comes from. And Christian tradition has replaced God's design in our teachings And I'm going to tell you, you go to an evangelical church, why do you think the United States is so pro-Israel? Because they believe that the genetic descendants of Abraham get special dispensation, special advantage. It's not true. They don't get any disadvantage as far as I'm concerned. In fact, Paul says there was an advantage because they had all the Bible writings and the the traditions and all the things that were to teach them about the coming Messiah. There's all kinds of advantages Um, because of the knowledge that God had given them about the coming Messiah. But ultimately, we are either connected to God through Christ, or we're not. Isn't that true? Yeah. Yeah. Tim. Yes. Didn't they have a responsibility to be a priesthood because of their descendants? Not just because of... That was their responsibility as a a priesthood. Thanks for for bringing that up as we close. Because it wasn't to be the, the Levites or the sons of Aaron who priesthood. We read that earlier today. The promise was a nation of priests. The whole nation would be priests. Well, who are now the sons of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham? What we just read, all those who accept Christ. And that's why Peter says you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And what is the job of the priest? The job of the priest is to take symbolically the blood. The blood symbolically represents... The life of Christ and the truth about Christ's life. It's our job, our privilege to take that and minister it to other people. To set hearts and minds free. You know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've gone to such lengths to reach us. Because our minds, like ancient Israel, have been darkened. Our hearts have been warped with sinfulness. And and we oftentimes don't know how sick we are. And, and, And you've brought and reached us in places to bring us conviction, to help us know our great need of you. Help us learn the difference between how you design things to work and how tradition has derailed us so that we can get back on track with you, Lord, and practice your methods and live your ways. We pray in your holy name. Amen.